The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 223. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a time lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart team. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position heroes. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hello, I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the sixth Doctor story, The Mysterious Planet, the very beginning of The Trial of the Time Lord. And joining me today on the panel are Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and make sure to leave us comments there. We'd love to hear from you. And stick around to the end of the show, because we're going to have some feedback from our listeners on recent episodes. But first, uh, let's talk about this story. So this is, as I mentioned, the beginning of the, the sixth Doctor's second and final season on air. And it's the famous the trial of a time lord that co- that that, that covers a, the whole season. So, and they did that because they realized the show was on the bubble. So the BBC higher ups were wanting to cancel it, and the show itself was on trial. If they didn't perform the season, they were going to be canceled. So they thought, let's get Meta and <laughs> put that in the show. Well, it's it's funny because we talk about all these these shows now. The Star Treks, the Doctor Who's, Battlestar Galactica, of course, was kind of the, the precursor of this, of having, you know, the overarching story with some plots kind of mixed in. Well, that's basically what this is. You have this or- overarching story of story of the trial that they kind of intersperse within basic stories. So how does the season progress? It's 14 episodes. Three of them are standard four-parters. And two of them, this one being the first, uh, uh, Mysterious Planet, is set in the Doctor's past, and he's on trial for meddling, which is basically the same thing that they put the second Doctor on trial for. They even note that the Doctor's been on trial for this kind of thing in the past. Only the prosecutor, the Valiard, whose name means learned court prosecutor, we're told, mm-hmm. the Valiard or Valiard, as they sometimes say, thinks they were too lenient on the previous occasion with the second Doctor, and so he wants to kill number six. He wants capital punishment. And so he cites these two things from the past, from the Doctor's past. Then they're going to, the Doctor himself is going to introduce evidence from a future scenario where he has a new companion. So River Song is not the first companion from the Doctor's future we've seen. (laughs) And then they wrap it up with a two-parter. And there's a there's a behind the scenes story here that's really interesting. So this episode, Mysterious Planet, is written by Bob Holmes, who is often considered the best writer of the period. And you can tell it's got the you know patented Bob Holmes dark comedy dialogue, 
Mm-hmm. You know, like when you have yep. Sabalom Glitz and Dibber talking about their respective psychological problems and stuff. <laughs> but Robert Holmes was at the end of his life at this point. He was getting really sick. And in fact, he died during the production of the series. And Eric Sayward, who was like the script editor at the time, was very close to Holmes and really felt a need to defend Holmes's vision for what should happen. And John Nathan Turner was clashing with Eric Sayward. And Sayward was commissioned to write the end of the series because Holmes couldn't. And so he did. But then Say, and he really wanted Holmes's vision to come through for the series. And John Nathan Turner said no. He said that the ending doesn't work because it had the doctor and the Valiard like locked in eternal combat in the Matrix and mm-hmm. unable to get out and unless someone intervenes. And, of course, it's easy to get him out, but the BBC could look at that, in John Nathan Turner's opinion, and say, ooh, nice series finale. Yep, <laughs> right. exactly. And so he wasn't going to go with that ending, and Sayward got his nose in a snit, and he quit altogether. And just to turn the knife, he refused to let them use his script in any way in a revised, to come up with a revised script. So it's not like they could change the last scene or something. And so John Nathan Turner had to go to another writing couple, husband and wife named Pip and Jane Baker, mm-hmm. and say, we want you to write the ending. Here's the story so far, but you've got to write the final episode. And we're not allowed to tell you anything that's come before about this proposed final episode. You've got to come up with something totally on your own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we, we've seen Pip and Jane Baker before. They've written quite yeah. a bit through Classic Who. They're, they're, they're all okay. the way back to Fourth Doctor. And so... By the way, the, we've also, here previously on the show, we've done a Big Finish audio production that's sort of the reverse of this, called The Trial of the Valyard, mm-hmm. where we have the same actors back. We've got Colin Baker, we've got the same actor for the Valyard, we've got the same actor for the Madam Inquisitor, mm-hmm. and the Valyard's being put on trial. And it's a really interesting story. You may remember when we did that and we listened to it, every time the Doctor referred to the planet Ravalox, there was an electronic screeching noise to try to yep. block it out. Right. And right. we start to see the setup for that in this episode when it becomes evident that the High Council of the Time Lords has been suppressing certain evidence from the Matrix. And there's a moment when one of the characters, I've mentioned him, Sabalon Glitz, turns to his assistant Dibber and says something, and there's an electronic screeching noise that blacks it out. But, but you can't right. read his lips to see what he said. Oh. I didn't do that. Come on. You're going to have to tell me now. By the way, since yeah. we're talking about characters, we should talk about Sabalom Glitz. Yes. He's yeah. familiar to us as well because we talked yes. about Dragonfire, the seventh Doctor episode, and that's where he returns and then takes Mel, who we will see at the end of this season, <laughs> off to wherever. Yeah. Well, yeah. He'll, and, also, and, he'll also be back at the end of this season, too. He's a very different character here than he it's in many ways than he was in the Seventh Doctor story. I mean, in this, he kind of admits to being a homicidal psychopath and that sort of thing. Oh, um, and not just a psychopath. He he says Dibber to Dibber, you know, yours is just an ordinary case of psychopathy, but my malady goes much deeper. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, and, whereas in that one, he's they they really tone it down because you don't want Mel. You know, a doctor companion going off with a homicidal psychopath to well, wander the, the universe. I think if I remember correctly, there's even a line in Dragonfire where he basically says, well, I've reformed. 
and hasn't, okay. but he, at least he's reformed from being completely psychopathic, I guess. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, the value of the Inquisitor, so the Inquisitor is a Time Lord. And she has a, and that's her, she has a role. She's like a judge, essentially. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then the the Valyard, you mentioned that it's, they say it means prosecutor, but there's a lot of theories about who the Valyard is. Is that something we should deal with now or later? Well, they haven't pulled the trigger on that, but they will as we go along. The doctor, the Valyard has a very interesting relationship to the doctor. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's. Let, so we'll we'll table that until we get to that in this season. And, and of course, one thing to watch as we're watching this is how many nicknames does the doctor come up for the Valyard? Oh, I, I have been I've been doing a count. So as yeah. as of as of this as of this story, he's referred to the Valyard as the boatyard, the graveyard, the farmyard, and the scrapyard, and the knacker's <laughs> yes. yard. Well, that one he didn't he didn't directly call him Knacker's Yard, but he compared him to a Knacker's yeah. Yard. Close <laughs> yeah, that, I I was enjoying that. That was actually pretty clever. Uh, so one of the other things I, I I notice about this episode, this this series of stories, uh, or a series of episodes in this story, is the Doctor comes across as less of a jerk than he did yes. in the previous yeah. season, and, and so does Perry. Yeah, and their relationship is better. This is, I think, of, I, I, and I haven't gone back and studied this closely, but I think of all the Colin Baker episodes so far, this is the least bad. <laughs> yeah. And it, you can tell there's been some time elapsed since we right. last saw these two characters. They're much more comfortable with each other. Perry still complains, but not about the Doctor nearly as much. She is not a screeching harpy. She right. clearly, they, and the, these two characters are clearly softer towards each other. They're clearly enjoying each other's company now. When we first see them, they're walking through the forest arm in arm, you know, and even though there's a little banter between them, it's much more playful and much less, I hate your guts. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I mean, it has been, like, there was a gap of... 18 months. uh, 18 Mm -hmm. months, okay, yeah, 18 months Mm -hmm. between the last episode and this. So, yeah, they've they've apparently done some, a little bit of retooling on the... (laughs) On these characters since then, uh, I and I think this situation really plays to the Six Doctor's personality because mm-hmm. he's defensive. He's literally defending well, he, his life. He really gets some great, get, some great rants in. in yeah. this. and I mean, and, and Colin Baker plays it so well. His voice just goes really high and squeaky, and just gets really <laughs> offended and upset. And <laughs> yes, yes. Now, you mentioned that DeValiard goes for, he wants it to be a capital trial, which I think is interesting given what we just watched with the fifth Doctor story we just did, where the Doctor was put on trial for his life, and they were saying, you know, or not really on trial for his life, but he was, his, his, they were going to kill him, uh, and they were saying that this hasn't been done, we don't do this, and so all of a sudden now, <laughs> it's a thing we're doing. Uh, also ironic that Colin Baker is in both ep- both episodes, but mm-hmm. uh, I find that it kind of interesting that they've thrown this in there as something that now is on the table that this capital punishment. Yeah, well, they do whatever the story wants them to do, or what, <laughs> you know, they they're not really rigorous. I mean, they're they're some they're aware of continuity, but they're not really rigorous about it. Okay, not and down then, to the individual dialogue level, like oh, we we de- we never use capital punishment. Okay. Okay. So the, when he's mentioned, when they mentioned the uh, the charges, they say chart, you know, conduct on becoming a time lord, meddling, and transgressing the first law. What, what was the first law again? Is it's that the something meddling? like something like meddling? Don't meddle. Yeah. Something like that. So kind of like a time lord prime directive. 
Yeah. Yeah. Don't okay. don't change don't change the past, you know, beyond a certain point. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They're well, not, not that, really clear about it. And another thing that sort of recalls the fifth doctor's arc of infinity story is that it begins with the TARDIS showing up uh, you know, without the doctor's intervention on this Time Lord space station. Mm-hmm. So recall circuit essentially yep. being used, yep, which is now the second time ever, or you know, that was it was so rare before, but now we're doing we're doing Co- that. Common, it was a combination of a reta- recall circuit and the I guess the Time Lords have the ability to telepathically will someone to get into their TARDIS whether they want to or not. That seems like we, a creepy could, ability. Yeah, we'll we'll <laughs> see that later. What what happens with that? That that's I. One of the coming up stories that we'll see that happen, but yeah. And the doctor, as a result of the way he was reeled in, also is suffering from temporary amnesia. He doesn't remember where Perry is or what he was doing before he arrived here. And Uh, there is a very, very good reason why they don't want him to remember what happened with Perry, because we're going to find that out in the next story. Ooh, okay. And it's dark. It is real. It's as like, it, it it is about as the darkest thing ever in <laughs> yeah, in in classic who oh it's, man <laughs> but uh but yeah we open with this shot of the tardis being reeled into this giant space station it's like a big space wheel only it doesn't use rotational gravity you know it's being pulled in out of space and they spent a lot of money on that prop it apparently was like six feet across and john nathan turner said look we've got to make a really good impression Mm-hmm. This is going to be our first shot coming back from the break that almost killed us. And so I want it to be really visually impressive. And he insisted they spend the money on it, although there was debate about should they have really spent the money for that. Mm. And so with the lands, he comes out when is so there's a question about when this is. I mean, we don't really know when this is it. This is the, the, just no. The, the doctor says it's two million or more years in your future to Perry. Well, Ravelox is when they land, but I mean on the yeah. the trial itself. Oh yeah, takes place. We don't know when the trial is. It's the Doctor's okay. past, but that doesn't mean that it's in you know two thousand years in the future. Right, right. Yeah, there's a sort of question of it's during the the uh, in, the incarnation of the Doctor as the Sixth Doctor, but we don't know where when that point is. Okay. So so to tell listeners about the play within a within the play. Mm-hmm. The Doctor and Perry show up on this planet, Ravalox, which is very similar to Earth, but is not in Earth's position in space. It's mm-hmm. said to be two light years away, which would put it between here and Proxima Centauri in a non-existent solar system. But, uh, you know, I guess over two million years, another sun could have drifted into that space. In any event, it's near Earth, but not Earth, they think. But then they start the Doctor and Perry discover it looks like this really is Earth. They found, just mm-hmm. like in Beneath the Planet of the Apes and mm-hmm. Orphan 55, uh-huh. they discover a subway station. Yep. And they they find it's a, a, from a place called Marble Arch in London. Yep. And you would not guess that by looking at the surface above the subway station because it's all, there are no buildings at all. It's just all nature. There's an Iron Age civilization living there, you know, with Iron Age British-type people. Hmm. But underneath, there is this subway station, and there's an underground civilization of weirdos, just like in Beneath the Planet of the Apes and Orphan 55. And the underground people have, like, three books from the past that are are their holy books. One of them is Moby Dick, another is Water Babies, and the third is... UK habitat of the Canadian goose. 
Yeah. So let, let's let's mention for all the pedants out there, like me, they're not Canadian geese. They're Canada geese because they're named after a guy named Canada, not oh. because they're from uh. Canada. Okay. Right? Yes. And, and see, I, here I thought that here I thought it was that that's why Canadians <laughs> are so nice because they get together every year and channel all their anger into their geese. <laughs> those are those if you've geese. ever had to deal with Canada geese, they yes. are mean. They are horrible oh. creatures, and they, they are, are messy. Terrible. They are horrible and messy. But uh, so, and and by the way, the, the, having that the UK habitat of the Canadian geese, that is such a Douglas Adams callback. Oh, Douglas yeah. Adams loves to throw stuff like that in his book. Douglas Adams and Monty Python both love to do that, where they would throw something just really arcane like that into their. Mm-hmm. Well, and <laughs> note that whenever like they the uh, the 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 guy who's in charge of c- keeping this knowledge, uh, whenever he quotes one of them, it's always from this particular sacred book, the ha- yeah. U- the uh, UK Habitats book, because it's just funny to have you know it's it's a it's a fish sort of fish out of water or just you know silly. For someone to mm-hmm. hold this up yeah. as a great, a great book, and it makes you wonder of all all of our great archaeological finds, how many of them are really just silly things that we're touting as somehow very significant. Oh um, yeah, I think a lot of those images from the Stone Age of like, oh, this is some kind of ancient goddess. No, it's a little girl's doll. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. right. It, In any event, there is yeah. a connection between these two civilizations. They're aware of each other, the above ground, the upstairs, and the downstairs people. Mm-hmm. And there's a technological link between them, because on the surface, they've got this big metal plastic-looking thing that is spoken of by the Iron Age people as a totem to their Earth god. But we learn that it's actually a light converter whose job is to convert, we're ultimately told, and this makes no sense, <laughs> ultraviolet light into black light energy. And yep. that makes no sense because ultraviolet light is black light energy. It doesn't have to be converted. But <laughs> right. it's, it's powering <laughs> the underground civilization, and it's powering it in a way that if they don't get a constant feed of the black light energy, there will be an explosion that will destroy the underground civilization. So running the underground civilization is a robot mm-hmm. named Drathro, who's often called the Immortal, and he's basically treating the humans in the below-ground civilization as his slaves. He's right. been here for 500 years. He's been charged with—so Ravelox apparently was subject to a massive solar flare 500 years ago, and when that happened, he created this underground place— in accordance with his programming, to keep some three people from Andromeda called the Sleepers safe. But they've apparently since died, and so he's just running this civilization down there. And he's been lying to the, to the humans, telling them that there's still this raging firestorm on the surface, so they need to stay down here and help him. Interlopers keep coming into this situation because he's apparently got a bunch of advanced secrets of some kind from his home wherever in the Andromeda constellation, not the same as the Andromeda galaxy. It's called the Andromeda galaxy because it's in the Andromeda constellation. Right. (laughs) But he's got all these secrets, and so off-worlders keep coming in and wanting to destroy the great totem of the Earth God to disable him so they can go down there and get the secrets. And that's what Sabalom Glitz is here to do with his assistant Dibber. Mm-hmm. So chaos ensues, the black light converter gets destroyed, there's lots of running around and dramatic talking, and in the end, the underground civilization comes topside, 
Drathro is destroyed, and a few people lost their lives along the way, which is what the Valyard is really concerned about. But the Doctor's mm-hmm. point is, I was trying to help these people, and I did. Right. So let's talk about some of the elements of this. I really like the design of Drathro. The the, the I, I think I, effective as a practical effect of the era for what they probably mm-hmm. paid for it. I thought it was a a, a, a somewhat effective prop, a guy mm-hmm. in a costume. Yep. Um, so I like that. Yeah, it, for a robot, he so it's to give people a visual idea. He's really tall. He's made out of metal. He has the number three on his chest for some reason with a kind of stylized font. Right. And, but the most, and he's got you know kind of pinchers for hands. I mean, blunt ones, kind of like a Waldo. Uh, but the most distinctive thing about his design is his head. Mm-hmm. His head is broad and has like points on both ends of it, and like horns. Yeah. Like horns and is yeah. curved inward with no face. So it looks right. kind of like one of those horizontal old style aerial dishes that they would rotate around, except it's got right. horns on the end and it's it's concave with no face. And mm. so I like that. The doctor at one point even chides Drathro as not being able to see beyond his metal nose, and he doesn't have a nose because his <laughs> face is concave. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and apparently what's oh, going and, on and with... N- no eyes or mouth, just no a eyes, solid right. metal surface. Right. And apparently he's he runs on the black light, so he needs the black light to continue going. Right. And the collection system is failing, so he decides the doctor is going to be capable of fixing it. And and so that's... He kind of enslaves him, recruits him, cap- has him captured right. after almost being stoned to death by people who found him trying to steal their water. And then it turns out that the head of security is a secret rebel against Drathro, who's mm-hmm. been funneling people uh, designated for culling, quote unquote. Right. Which this, this all this kind of reminds me a little bit of Discovery and Saru's mm. people and that sort of stuff. You know the, mm-hmm. the cullings and that sort of stuff. Anyway, yeah, uh, he he funnels them to the surface where they can live in freedom with the right. the people who yeah. are free is what they call so themselves. The, yeah, the under, underground world only has uh, enough capacity for 500 people at a time so when they hit 501 they call someone out yeah um and by the way the robot has a three because we find out that he's an l3 robot right because we also have an l1 robot which is the little uh track thing that goes through to capture the doctor and it's got an l1 on the side by the way the guy who is helping people escape to the surface even though he's he's drathro's like one of his chief officials Mm-hmm. is named Merdine. And I love the fact that Merdine is running an underground railroad, literally an underground <laughs> yeah. railroad to the surface. Yeah. In the and, underground oh, and, railroad. <laughs> and he also, they take trains around in the yeah. in mm-hmm. the underground, so he has a second underground railroad that's literal. <laughs> uh, should mention, uh, speaking of the underground, uh, that, that Marble Art Station is a station in London. It's on the west side of the, the metropolitan area. And the name of the the underground land, the underground tunnels, is Marb Station. Right, that's yeah. what they call Marble. it. Marble, yeah. so Marb yeah. Station. Marb Station, right. So meanwhile, you know, while the doctors are getting captured by Drathro and the people who live underground, the the, the Eloy or the Molochs, whatever they call them, because <laughs> so, mm-hmm. it kind of reminded me of H.G. Wells' Be the Molochs, the, the Eloy Moloch. or the surface dwellers. Perry has been captured by the surface dwellers, the, the Iron Age people, uh, along with... Sabalom and Sabalom and Dibber. I'm trying to keep all these names straight, <laughs> and uh, and so there's a queen of these of these people, of the villagers, and she determines that uh, she says to Perry that uh, 
oh, well, these guys, are, we're going to kill these guys for being interlopers and violating the law of, against, you know, space travel. We're going to marry you off to several of our villagers because we need to she, she, she promises to get, to get to find some good husbands for her. And, <laughs> and queen, the, the, the queen's name is Katrika, and she explains that they have very few women, so they have to be, oh, what's the best way to put it? Um, Shared. Well, yeah, probably. <laughs> and and so they've got polyandry going in their society, mm-hmm. which is very rare. Polygamy is fairly common because right. what tends to happen is uh, number one, men are more aggressive, and so they'll just take additional wives. But also, men get killed because men are more aggressive and they're designed for combat. They get killed in war more often, and yep. so you tend to have a a male female imbalance in the population, and that leads to more available females than men. Why the reverse would happen? Why you would have? It's like what's killing off all the women that would lead to a polyandry situation. Well, you don't see any women underneath. Every every person that you see underneath is man. Well, and so of course, since all the, the people above are being fed by people coming up from underneath, you're not getting women coming up. So one of the things I was thinking about with regard to why there were so few women underground was is that Drathro would be biased toward having male slaves because mm-hmm. of the as workers, as drones, that sort of thing, the, this, this going for strength, and having fewer women because you want to have fewer babies because you're limited to 500, and it probably was biased against having women. So that's my that was make, my headcanon. There got to well, be that, some down sense. there though if they've survived yes. five hundred years. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that happens is the uh, because Dibber and Sabalon Glitz, Glitz want to get rid of Dra- Drathro in order to get his secrets, they destroy the Blacklight Collector in the middle of the village, uh, which the Doctor says is a really bad idea because it will lead to an implosion that could. Not just destroy everyone in the tunnels, it could not just destroy the planet, but there is some theory that it could maybe destroy the entire universe. Which now now course... we know where Stephen Moffat got his idea of how to do ramp up the, the drama. <laughs> yeah. Everything's right. going to and, die. And, and the doctor knows that there has never been a blacklight explosion before, despite the fact he admits blacklight is not his field. <laughs> right, right. So, and then he, t- he does tell Perry... You know, they can't just run away. They can't let people die if there's a chance of saving them. And this is where we get – we're constantly being interrupted through this story, by the way, with uh, stuff coming on you – know, happening during the trial and objections and statements from, you know, the Valyard and the Doctor and that sort of thing. And this is where there's a key exchange for the Valyard because the Doctor says, see, see, this is – I was there to help people. That's not meddling. I'm saving lives. And mm-hmm. the Valyard says – the crime was in being there, Doctor. Your immaturity was in not realizing you had broken a cardinal law of the Time Lords. Your presence initiated the whole chain of events that we have witnessed. And I was thinking to myself, how is the Doctor responsible? Like, uh, uh, Dibber and Sabalon Glitz would have come? They would have destroyed the Light Collector? Yeah. It, like it, 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 it's not a good argument on the part of the Valyard. This is one of the things that... I don't like about the series is I don't like the I don't like the courtroom scenes because mm-hmm. the the logic is not good courtroom drama. It's sort of paint by numbers cartoon courtroom drama that is, you know, clearly the product of someone who is and it, it was also written afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, Robert Holmes wrote the Ravelock stuff and then mm-hmm. someone else came along and wrote the courtroom stuff. And the courtroom stuff is clearly by someone who doesn't think like a lawyer 
but hmm. has watched television about courts <laughs> yeah. and and thinks they know how it works. And it's there's a way to do great riveting courtroom drama, but this is not it. Because it's <laughs> it's it's basically the Valeyard and the Doctor being petty and arrogant and sniping at each other with uh, Madame Inquisitor trying to keep the balance and sound official. Right, right. It sort of reminds me a little bit of the Deep Space Nine episode where they, the Odo was on trial for his life, and that one worked better. The, you mm-hmm. had the you had the judge and the and yeah, the she was sides. great. Yeah, that was that was a better you know sci-fi courtroom drama. I mean, there, and, there have and, been there have been great court court dramas within sci-fi. Uh, you can yeah. think of like the Drumhead and TN, TNG and stuff like that that are you know really really well done, but. Actually, the best one I've ever seen is in a novel. It's in uh, Fuzzy Nation by John Scalza. It is in. It mm. starts as a kind of comedic sci-fi novel, and then, well, semi-comedic, but then it turns into riveting courtroom drama. It's huh. really good. Interesting. I do like the actors' performances for Madame Inquisitor and the Valeyard. Mm-hmm. I just don't like the dialogue they're given. It feels right. artificial. Well, and, and the, the with the caveat, I would say I, the the interaction between the Doctor and the Valier, I do like because they're just going after each other. That part mm-hmm. is that part I really I've always kind of enjoyed because again, you get you, Colin Baker gets his one liners after the the Valier and everything, but yeah, the actual court proceedings are kind of meh. Yeah. So we at the end of this, as the Doctor's trying to get Drathro to let the people go and shut things down, you know. He wants Drathro to voluntarily die, quote unquote, uh, in order to let the, everyone else survive. And Drathro is saying, "No, there's no reason for them to survive if I don't. So I'm just going to let everyone die." And so the, there's this debate with the the robot over the morality of what he's doing. And you know, the mm-hmm. the robot thinks of the humans only as work units that cannot exist without him. And but the doctor argues for the right to life. Yeah, yeah, I found it interesting, and this is something we wouldn't necessarily get today, given crazy ideas that are out there in society about robots today. Mm. But we have this, are robots as valuable as human beings debate, and the doctor is like on the side of team no. <laughs> yeah. They're they are not as valuable as human beings, so, so Drathro should be willing to go offline, and really that's all it is. Yeah, he's a robot. Okay, we just need to depower you for a while until we can get you an alternate black light supply. Okay, exactly. That's not so bad. It's just the just a little we off can, switch. We can give you an upgraded version that'll give you more power or whatever. Just give us some time. Yeah, <laughs> right. And but they don't point that out. But the doctor does say robots are not as important as human beings, which is true. Drathro doesn't see it that way, and then they, they didn't have this debate. There's a there's an interesting moment in the argument towards the beginning of it where the doctor points out to Drathro that without humans robots wouldn't even exist. Mm-hmm. And so you should give them priority when it comes to who's more important. Right. And Drathro turns it around on him and says, "Yes, humans made robots, therefore robots are more advanced, therefore robots are more important." <laughs> which right. which is not true. <laughs> Apparently, he hasn't he hasn't heard the uh, the saying about how you know nothing created is greater than its creator. Yeah, water right. doesn't rise higher than its source. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, the debate does not stay on that level. And in my notes, I have poorly thought out humanistic babbling about life. <laughs> right. Right. 
He does get to accuse uh, Drathro of hubris, which is a human sin, you know, the sin of pride. Uh, so I, I thought that was a, an interesting moment. Uh, so in the end, Jathro does go offline. Things do blow up, but just not as badly as as it wa- could have been. Uh, the d- dwellers underground end up on the surface, and several people do die. But we have we're kind of left with a couple of remaining questions at the end of this: is who moved Earth and renamed it Ravalox, mm-hmm. and what was in the box of secrets that Sabalon and Dibber were going for that kept getting uh, redacted? By the mm-hmm. Time Lords in the ma- in the Matrix recording, and that's the, and I, I assume that's going to be continued to be revealed right. as yeah. things go along this season. And again, once once you've seen the end of this this series and uh, you you know know what the secrets are, you can see that Sabalom says it. Okay, all right. In there, gonna, he I'll let that says be a, the word. There's yeah. one word that he says, and you can you can read his lips and figure it out pretty easily. Okay, but uh, I, I won't go I, back I gotta, and rewatch it then. I got a kick how the, the, the container of the secrets was basically just a repurposed film canister. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It was just All a on, basic film storage canister. Yeah. On microdots. That's what it was. Yep. Uh, okay. Is there anything else that we need to say about this, this uh, episode, the story? Father Corey? There were a couple of callbacks, uh, pretty much you could say, to Tom Baker's era. Mm-hmm. And John Pertwee. And John Pertwee. So Colin Baker, when he gets, or the doctor, when he gets knocked out as he's coming back, uh, Perry's there and he says, Sarah Jane. Yeah. So he talks yeah. about Sarah Jane, calls Sarah Jane. He's there with, uh, with Dathro and he offers Dathro's two little companions, some jelly babies. That's right. And then, uh, at one point, I, I can't remember if it was Sabalom or, or his, his Dibbler says five rounds rapid. Yeah. Yes. Brigadier line. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy. So we've got some interesting stuff going on here on, on the small scale. At one point, the Valyard says, in order to impress us with Robert Holmes's apparent vocabulary, the Valyard says that he's going to present in the trial, he's not going to waste the court's time by giving them lots and lots of examples of the doctor's meddling. He's going to give them two epistopic interfaces uh, from, <laughs> from the doctor's recent history. And so epistropic me, epistopic means of recurring epistemological discussion and debate. So like okay. a topic that comes up all the time in epistemology and gets debated. And epistemology is the theory of knowledge, but this is way too meta for I've got two pieces of evidence for you. <laughs> <laughs> I noted, I have in my notes, Perry runs like a girl, which <laughs> well, yeah. she does. Yeah. <laughs> And what's the weird deal with Glitz and Dibber's sideburns? They have like the weirdest sideburns ever. <laughs> yeah. If you if you see it now, they they're they're like sideburns made out of horizontal bands that are separated mm-hmm. from each other, and and it's apparently a fashion in their culture to have these, and it looks yep. visually interesting. It does look futuristic. You know, there's always a problem in sci-fi of how do you convey something that you know we're in the future visually by people's fashions and stuff. And it's, it's effective, but unless they have like the tightest wound hair ever, you couldn't just have the actors grow sideburns and then take a, um, you know, a clipper and make those. I think those have to be some kind of applique that they like glued on mm-hmm. their faces mm-hmm. or something. 
Yeah, it's it felt very like eighties sci fi. You know what I mean? That sort of yeah. that sort of facial hair thing well, that it, was an eighties sci fi thing. It's very very reminiscent of of kind of like in the eighties and nineties when they would you know people would cut the sides of their head real short, you know, like a high and tight, mm-hmm. and then they would do shave patterns yeah. into the side of their head. It looked yeah. very similar as, to that. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Uh, one last thing: uh, after the canister, uh, the film canister of secrets has been destroyed, uh, Dibber pulls out from under the robot a piece of uh, something else of value that he gives to Sablom, so they get a happy ending. They've got something mm-hmm. of value after all. He says it's a piece of silicone, which Glitz identifies as the hardest known metal in the galaxy. <laughs> it's like, no, silicone actually tends to be rather squishy. Yes, yes. <laughs> Someone was not looking in their. I, their I, I have textbook. it in my kitchen, you know. I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Well, I think they they change it to something like siliconite or something like that, where it wasn't just straight silicone, but yeah. Oh, but I heard close silicone. Enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I had the the couches on. I can't. I, I didn't write down what the word was, but it wasn't silicone. It was they added oh. like an ite or something like that on the end of it because that changes everything. It changes everything <laughs> when you put ite on the end. A uh, couple of of things uh, should note about this story is. Mysterious Planet, I called it this story, you know, the, the four episodes we had here, The Mysterious Planet. But that's not actually, it's an unofficial name. It's an unofficial mm-hmm. title for these four. In fact, the whole, the season had the one title, The Trial of the, of the Time Lord. So that's, that's a, a, if you go looking for things, that's going to be an unofficial name. Yeah, which makes it kind of difficult for looking through like BritBox because it's all just in right. one Trial of the Time Lord chunk. Yes, Another interesting aspect is that the costuming, the doctor in the in the various stories that we see this season will have they they, they vary his costume so that you can, you see him in the trial he's wearing one thing and then when he's they're showing the the flashback or in, eventually I, I suppose the flash forward uh, he'll be wearing something different in order to distinguish between that you know to say these are different time periods. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing with uh, Nicola Bryant who plays Perry. Uh, apparently, I was reading that they they changed her costumes to be more conservative than she was yeah, previously. She, she's wearing yeah. slacks now instead of short shorts. Right, yeah. right, because they felt like it was too scandalous for the young viewers to for her what she was wearing before. So <laughs> just a little. <laughs> I little don't note think there. I don't think the very youngest viewers would have cared. I think it's more the intermediate male viewers <laughs> that picked up on this. Yeah, and, yes. and that was the reason why she was brought on in the first place. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting. So, By the way, uh, um, yeah. if you if you go back, uh, so after the disaster that was Orphan Fifty Five. Yep, Sycorax Rock on YouTube made a, a an awesome redemptive video called Orphan Fifty Five at where he rewrote the lyrics to Mambo Number no. Five. Yes, mm. and at one point he's talking about so in in Orphan Fifty Five they're on a base that's under siege, a standard Doctor Who trope, and he was noting he was noting parallels between Orphan Fifty Five and other episodes of Doctor Who, like there's one where the seventh doctor and ace encounter mutant humans from from the future just like we have in orphan 55 and it turns out orphan 55 is earth just like in mysterious planet and so at one point he's singing like siege base woke case picture this with mccoy and ace and then <laughs> at towards the end of it he's let me see if I can remember exactly. He said he's he's talking about the ecological mystery 
and he's singing like, uh, the moralizing coda's out of place. This episode already made its case. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I, I can't remember the exact hook, but he's the, like the stinger for the song is uh, something or other, dang it, uh, call it the mysterious Captain Planet. And so, <laughs> nice. So you have to be a certain he, age to get that one. Yeah, yeah. But he's got. He's recognizing this is a bad retread of Mysterious Planet. Right. Right. <laughs> nice. All right. I think that we, that should wrap it up for our discussion of Mysterious Planet. Uh, we do, like I said, we do have some feedback I want to share. Uh, and our first bit of feedback comes from our discussion of episode two eighteen on the third Doctor colony in space. RO on YouTube writes, another great episode, guys. It's interesting you drew the parallels with the North American colonization. I hadn't considered that before. And it's a strong allegory, as you discuss. I also wonder whether Malcolm Hulk was also influenced by the experiences of British colonialism in India with the East India Company, for example. So uh, in that episode, we were talking about how it re reminded us of American, the American colonization. But mm -hmm. he's uh, recalling probably from a British perspective, uh, the Indian yeah. colonization, which right. is an interesting parallel. Yeah, it, it, I know that Malcolm Hulk was thinking of the American colonization, but that doesn't exclude uh, the Indian colonization and the role right. that the East India Company played. They're, they yeah, would it, be the analog for the mining corporation that right. like gets to run everything, even though they're not the government, properly speaking. Right. And you, you would think that the Indian colonization as in the, the subcontinent of India, would be much more uh, prescient to the British listeners, British viewers, because that was directly by their country versus a lot of you know, North American colonization after 1776 wasn't by their, their country anymore. Right. It was by the United States. Yeah, also, also we, got, we, we ceased being colonies 200 years ago, and India only ceased being a colony 70 years ago. Right, and much closer in time to the, when that episode aired. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we had another bit of feedback from uh, Matt from Ithaca, who sent an email where he wanted to talk about Doctor Who's new season with Matt Smith and wanted to compare the Russell T. Davies era with the Moffat era. He says uh, Russell T. Davies, or another sh show producer, said that new Who... For, first, he wanted to talk about the historicals, my com ongoing complaint that we don't do pure historicals. Uh, and he said he remembers Davies or another producer saying at one point that New Who doesn't do pure historicals on orders from the BBC, which I think is interesting. And that may have been a mandate, especially early on when Russell T. Davies brought it back. I don't think that would apply today. I think okay. I think they've yeah. given Chris Chibnall so much liberty with what he can do that if he wanted to do pure historicals at this point, yeah. he could. And, and you know, Rosa was a pure historical except for the time traveler guy. Well, the that's not a pure guy. historical. Yeah, that's not a pure historical, but if you stripped his character out, it would have been basically a pure historical. Yes, yes. And and, and, I, and that's one of the reasons that that example, like it could have been a decent episode just on its own without that weirdness. Anyway, uh, Matt also says, Regarding seasons five and six in Stephen Moffat, so the Matt Smith era, mm -hmm. he, uh, he says, in my opinion, this run of episodes showcases Stephen Moffat's greatest weaknesses as a writer, his love of spectacle and high dramatic moments for their own sake, coupled with little or no interest in making those moments cohere with the surrounding <laughs> story. And he gives this example, Pandorica opens, 
Day of the Moon, The Impossible Astronaut, and then the the resolution of the whole season altogether. Yep. And Matt says, time and again, Moffat essentially writes himself into a corner in the pursuit of great dramatic moments, creepy imagery, and seemingly impossible obstacles for the protagonist of a story, but he either cannot or cares not to construct logical explanations for these moments or to justify them in terms of the story. Say what you like about RTD's writing, Russell T. Davies' writing, but I think that he always handled this much better. However whimsical or weird his stories became, his set pieces never outran the dramatic logic. Comments? I think we de- I think we definitely agree with that. I think we talked about that a, qu- a bit last episode. A lot of yeah. that. Uh, what do you mean we? <laughs> well, I mean we we had a whole discussion I mean, no, no, no. basically with what he said last episode, kind of saying this. So I think that both Russell T Davies and Stephen Moffat have strengths mm-hmm. and weaknesses as writers. I think on balance, I prefer Stephen Moffat, but I clearly recognize he's got some significant weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Where Moffat is really good is at the level of dialogue and at the level of idea generation. Mm-hmm. And when he wants to be, he can be good at intricate plotting. But like look at the way River Song's overall timeline fits together. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was something that developed over time. I mean, originally he didn't have any of that. And then he thought it through and played it out over a couple of seasons and it works. But he's also really lame at times at pacing and plot coherence because the whole silence thing, I mean, it sets up River Song's story, but in its own terms, it doesn't make hardly any sense. And the silence will fall thing gets paid off in an incredibly rushed fashion that is totally unsatisfying. And so I think he's really good at dialogue and idea generation, but he's hit and miss when it comes to plot. Mm -hmm. And as we've said, he's terrible at following through on the hard choices of killing off a character, that sort yeah, of thing. Right. Uh, and, yeah. And that's where, that's where I like how, how Matt says that he, he just doesn't care. You know, right. when he hit, he'll hit points where he'll have all these great ideas and I don't have any more time to flesh anything out. So eh, just drop it. Right. Just, just write a quick resolution and move on. Well, he, and, and Matt in his email, which I didn't read this part of it, but he, he compared it to another Moffat production, which was Sherlock, where there was a whole, uh, variation on the uh the Reichenbach Falls where Sherlock seemingly dies and then just comes back and there's no explanation of how he could have possibly came gotten out of that. This is one where I had I mean I understand the dissatisfaction that he had with that episode and I sympathize with it. I also understand the point that Moffat is making when he brings Sherlock back is mm-hmm. that there are multiple ways this could be done. It ultimately doesn't matter which one is correct. Um, <laughs> the important thing is that he's back and then watching the character drama of what happens when Watson realizes Sherlock has allowed him to believe for two years that his best friend was dead. Of course he's going to slug him. Right. You know? yeah, right. And so so the, the, the important thing moving forward is not the technical details of how did Sherlock survive. There are multiple ways that could happen. The important thing is what happens now. And I think that it, in the end, that's one of the reasons why I prefer Moffat to the, any of the other new Who showrunners is despite his weaknesses, those strengths are so strong. They, they, mm-hmm. they, they, for me, some of my favorite stories are Moffat stories because in the end, it wasn't really, it didn't really matter. It, it wasn't the most important thing. 
that everything have a, a solidly plotted out, you know, coherent, right. th- you know, that, that the, I had enough enjoyment out of the, the, the snappy dialogue and the, and the fun little set pieces and that sort of stuff that it, it didn't matter to me that the plot didn't cohere as well as it could. Well, an over explanation can be a weakness as well. I mean, how many times have we complained about an episode where, you know, they got so deep into the techno babble and so deep into how did this happen? That's like, this makes no sense. Right. They, they overthought the whole process. And it's like, if you had just left it alone. We would have been, okay, the ship goes fast. That works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, so I think that I think that's a good discussion there. Thank you, Matt and uh, RO for your feedback. Uh, both uh, really good. Thank you so much. So as we wrap things up, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Emily S, Les R, Paul L, Terry M, and Yvonne R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at Starquest. Now's a great time to become a StarQuest patron, thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter. When you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor to support all our shows, including this one, which makes your gifts go even further. And we're, like I've said before, we're more than halfway to our goal of $2,000 in new monthly pledges. That is a very important goal for us as it will allow us to do some new things, some necessary things for StarQuest. So. Why don't you help us close the gap? If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. And, of course, we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week and edits out uh, all of my worst mistakes. So thank you, <laughs> Victor, for that. And so that's it from us. What do you think of The Mysterious Planet, this Sixth Doctor beginning of the Trial of the Time Lord? You can let us know by going to sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or sending an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 11th Doctor story, Night Terrors. Until then, Jimmy Aitken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. And Father Corey Stiga, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, everything in life has its purpose, Drathro. Every creature plays its part. But the purpose of life is too big to be knowable. Very dramatic. Right. This is going to be fun.